The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. So in the first week of Acts, we considered all of chapter 1, which was a mistake. If we do it again, I'll break up chapter 1 into a couple of sections. But we saw three very important ideas present in the opening chapter of Acts. First, that Jesus is king. That Jesus ascends to the heavenly places, he is exalted to God's right hand, and King Jesus casts a tremendous shadow all throughout the book of Acts from this point forward. It's all about King Jesus working through King Jesus' people. The second idea was we saw that Jesus sends his spirit That Jesus tells his disciples that it's better for him to leave so that they can be empowered with his Holy Spirit. He empowers his people to go be witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. The third idea we saw was that Jesus works through a people. That Jesus in his divine and mysterious plan chooses to use folks like us and folks like the apostles to go about making his name known. This was pictured by these 12 apostles that were filled with the Spirit who were commissioned, Christ Christ was uh, intent on building his church on these 12 that he commissioned. Last week, Aaron taught on Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, this really unique and incredible moment in history, this amazing event where we have three signs of God's presence. We have wind, we have fire, we have inspired speech. This amazing moment where God, the God who inhabits temples, the God whose glory burns up sinners, God's presence descends to be in the heart of his people. And the tongues of fire rested on each individual believer, and a new people was born. The Spirit lights the flame in his people. It creates in them urgency, and it creates in them purity. It gives them power to go be about Jesus' mission. Like Jesus, the the, the way that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in his baptism, the Holy Spirit has now descended on Jesus' people to commission them out. Aaron helpfully pointed out that this is kind of an inversion of the Tower of Babel. Remember the story, the Tower of Babel? People conspiring together from every tribe, tongue, and nation to build a name for themselves. Then God descends in judgment. Well, the story of Pentecost is an inversion of that. Jesus gathers people from every tribe, tongue, and nation together, and his spirit descends in blessing and salvation and gifting and empowerment. And then we're told in verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, that the witnesses are utterly Bumfuzzled. You know what that word? It, confused, confounded. The witnesses present are confounded, and they ask in verse 12, What does all of this mean? What is the meaning of, the, of Pentecost, of the, of the wind, of the fire, of the flaming tongues? All of this amazing stuff that, that, that we're witnessing right now. Like, what, what do we make of all of this? What does this mean? Have you ever been in a moment where you, were, you, you knew you were watching history? Like, may, maybe not all of you are old enough to remember when the clock struck January 1st, 2000. But for those of you who are, what was it like when Y2K was ushered in? Uh, I was 12. Uh, I remember I had a Will Smith album called Willennium that was celebrating the, uh, the new millennium. That's a deep cut reference. <laughs> um, Will Smith needs all the, the support he can get these days, I guess. I had this album, and one of the, the, the reason I remember it so distinctly is because that Christmas, or, or that New Year's rather, we, we got together with a couple of families from church, and you know, as a 12-year-old, and all of the kids, we were together, and we were showing off our Christmas presents, and our Will Smith albums, and our new footballs and stuff, but I remember at about 11.55, the, the parents gathered everybody into the main living room, and we circled up and held hands, and we were going we to pray in the new millennium. Now, 
I wasn't old enough to understand how freaked out people were, but I was, under, I was old enough to understand that we don't typically pray in the new year like this. Like you could kind of feel the anxious vibes in the room and even, even kind of building up to the, you know, 99 going to 2000. So we gathered together and we, we prayed and thankfully, you know, there was no, you know, dystopian outcome. Everything was fine when the clock struck 2000. And I would like to think that's attributable to that room full of believers. I like to think that we are responsible, you know, for going to the Lord in prayer and asking that this would be a smooth transition into the millennium. Do you remember that, Bree? Do you remember doing that? Bree is my sister and she, she remembers that. Maybe not as vividly as I do. Maybe on a more serious note, where were you at on September 11th, 2001? I was in ninth grade math class with Mr. Chester, our math teacher. And I remember, again, I was witnessing stuff that I knew was important, but I had no idea how important it really was, what was, what was actually taking place. And it's actually taken me you know, years to really begin to understand and see and learn the importance of those really monumentous you know, events. Similarly, There's a group of witnesses who see exactly what's taking place on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit descends and essentially kicks off a new age. And they're wondering, what are we watching? What's happening here? What is the meaning of all of this that's taking place? Our passage today is Peter's answer. Peter's telling these folks who are confounded as to what's happening, Peter is giving them a sermon explaining exactly what they are witnessing. He quotes three Old Testament passages, and then he lands on his big zinger on verse 36. And then he calls everyone in attendance to a response. Let's look at Acts 2, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice like a good preacher, sees an occasion to preach and goes after it. Lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Listen up. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. It's like like they haven't been drinking. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Quotation number one. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, remember that all of this is taking place in Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish nation. This is a a thoroughly Jewish audience who is witnessing these events on the day of Pentecost. And the Jewish expectation at that time was that there was coming a day, the day of the Lord. It's repeated again and again and again in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord. The day when the Lord would come finally and fully. He would usher in a new age. He He would get rid of the old age marked by the fall and marked by sin and evil and death. And he would bring in this new messianic age. It would be the age of the king, where the king rules justly, where sins are forgiven, where there's life, where the spirit falls, where, where, where evil is paid for, where, where God's enemies are finally and fully defeated. They anticipated this day of the Lord coming one day. Passages like Joel chapter 2 talk about that very day. There's coming a, a new age when God's presence is going to land on us like it's never landed on us before, and it's going to kickstart something new. And Peter says... You want to know what's happening? Actually, the day of the Lord has come. 
the new age is here. Remember how God said that the day of the Lord would be accompanied by a pouring out of his spirit? This is that spirit. This is that day. The day of the Lord has come. Notice the apocalyptic language in verse 20, verse 19 as well. It's, it's a, it's, oftentimes you'll see the prophets and the apocalyptic authors use this kind of apocalyptic language to talk about uh, uh, events that we might say are earth-shattering. In the same way, they talk about uh, these, these sort of changing of epochs that's like as if the sun were going dark and as if the moon was turned to blood. Uses this dramatic and figurative language to say that this is the dawn of something new. And this prophecy, uh, Joel anticipates the, the, the gifts of the Spirit not being reserved only for the prophets, but the gifts of the Spirit actually being distributed amongst the people. If you think to uh, Numbers chapter 11, there's this moment where Moses kind of reflects and he says, oh, if only God's people could all be filled with the Spirit and all could prophesy. And what Peter's saying is that that has happened. The, 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 the being filled with the Spirit, being indwelled by the Spirit, being gifted by the Spirit is not limited just to the prophets any longer. It's all of God's people receive God's presence fully. When he talks about prophesying and this prophetic speech, he's probably talking about the tongues that Aaron talked about last week. That the, the tongues that were, that the prophetic speech that was anticipated here in this prophecy are fulfilled in, in the speaking of tongues in the story of Pentecost. This is momentous. But Peter also acknowledges that there's, this has worked itself out in a way that nobody expected. The new age has come, but it's not come in the way that we thought it would. The new age has come through a Messiah who died and was then resurrected. And the old age still seems to persist. And so there's introduced kind of this, this tension between the new age that's here, that's already here, and the old age that's here. And, and there's a tension that the, the, the church is kind of called to live within. And actually what we'll see all throughout the book of Acts is how the, the apostles experience life in the kingdom, life filled by the Spirit, but still being people who very much live in the old age and experience opposition to their message. Do you remember um, the old animated Robin Hood? The dun 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 That one. Dun, 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 dun. It's in your head for the rest of the night. No. Now, one of the things I remember about Robin Hood is just how despicable Prince John is. Do you remember that? You just watch it, and even as a kid, you're like, this guy's the worst. You know, and when they're, when little John and when Robin Hood are like sucking the jewels off of his rings, when they're, you know, that scene, it's like he's getting what he deserves. Prince John is despicable. So you remember that Prince John is this kind of pseudo ruler. He's evil. He rules over the land. He's unjust. He's cruel. He, he taxes people cruelly. But you have this uh, faction, I guess you could say, of loyalist to King is it, is it King Richard? King Richard the Lionheart, right? You have this, this faction that's loyal. Robin Hood and Little John, they're, they're, they're loyal to the real king, though the king is in a far-off country. And they know that Prince John is ruling right now, but, it's, but he doesn't deserve to rule. And there's coming a day when King Richard is going to return, and Prince John and his little, his little tricks and his little pseudo-kingdom, it's, it's all going to be wiped away when King Richard the Lionheart gets here and rules in justice and in equity and in goodness, right? And the same way the New Testament envisions Christians living in that old age as people of the new age. The old age still persists. It's still characterized by the vapor. It's still characterized by death and by evil. But at the same time, we're, we're people who live in light of the coming king's rule. We're kingdom people. We, we live in light of a new age, in light of a new king who has filled us with his Holy Spirit. And we live acts of, in lives of resistance, kind of raging against the rule of the Prince John, the prince of the power of the age as Paul describes him. That's exactly the picture of the New Testament, that the, the Messianic age has dawned, and Christians are people who live under the true king's rule. There's been a dramatic shift in history. The timeline has shifted. The world will never be the same. 
Peter says that the Spirit of God has been poured out and the people of God have been set aflame and unleashed into the world. That's not his point. Verse 22, let's keep reading. Men of Israel, hear these words. Listen up. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, notice the way that Peter describes actions here. Look at the stuff that God does in these verses. God attested to Jesus' legitimacy. God did mighty works and wonders and signs through Jesus in their midst. God delivered him up to be crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge that he himself possesses. And God raised him from the dead. But also notice the action of Peter's hearers. Peter says the stuff you did, stuff his listeners did. He says, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. In other words, they gamed the Roman system to have Jesus put to death. And that's something they did. But he says that death couldn't stop Jesus because that was God's plan all along. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. And this is just so baller because it's not possible for Jesus to be held by it. Death just didn't even have it within itself to hold Jesus. But notice, Peter doesn't seem like any of these statements are at odds with one another. You know what I'm saying? He says that God delivered Jesus up to be crucified according to the definite plan and his foreknowledge. But at the same time, he says that these listeners crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. Sovereignty and human responsibility are perfectly aligned in Peter's mind. He understands that those two things aren't at odds with one another, but those two things are woven together. That God can be behind an act, and that these evil men can be behind an act, and those two things aren't at odds with one another. I'll refer you to a podcast that Aaron and I did a couple of weeks ago where we talk about that dynamic specifically, about the relationship of God's sovereignty over all things and God's sovereignty over history and humans, uh, humanity's responsibility within that. And I think one of the clearest places in all of Scripture that you know, Scripture speaks to that question is right here. Charles Spurgeon was once asked, you know, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty with human responsibility? And his question was, why would I need to reconcile friends? That's a, a little evasive, but it works, right? <laughs> this evil act was always the plan. And look at quotation number two. Peter quotes Psalm 16. For David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also uh, will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter says, brothers, listen. David wrote in Psalm 16 that, he would, that his soul would not be abandoned to Hades, that is the place of the dead. 
And he wrote in Psalm 16 that, his, that as God's holy and anointed one, he would not see corruption. But Peter says, here's what we know. Here's what we know for a fact. David's dead. In fact, I mean, you guys want to take a weekend trip to go see his grave? Let's do it. David is dead. He's, 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 he's dust now. He's deceased. He is acquainted with corruption. He's, he's dead. And if, and if, what's he, if what he's saying in Psalm 16 is to be you know, fulfilled in David's lifetime, it's a little underwhelming, anticlimactic. He won't abandon his soul to Hades, the place of the dead, decay and corruption of the grave. It's like David's dead. But here's what we also know. God promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David that one of his descendants would occupy David's throne forever. This comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12. The Lord says to King David, when your days are fulfilled, when you die, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So Peter sees these passages. He says, we know David's dead, long dead, like all humans. He's in a tomb. But he also knows that God made a promise to David. And he says, wait a second. Jesus, who is David's great, great, great grandson, is resurrected. And these light bulbs go off in Peter's mind. And he says, Psalm 16 anticipated Jesus all along. And this is the case that he makes to his hearers. This is not an unexpected way that the Messiah was going to behave. This is in the scriptures. This is exactly how this was always supposed to play out. Peter continues. If Jesus is resurrected, where is he now? Well, we watched him ascend to the Father. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, quotation number three, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here Peter quotes Psalm 110, which is actually the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. Jesus himself quotes Psalm 110 to explain his ministry to his opposers in places like Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. We'll read that briefly. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Jesus shows that in Psalm 110 that God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. And Jesus says, how could David call his descendant Lord? Therefore, the Messiah must be something greater than just a descendant of David. He must be the Lord. And here, this is the exact point that Peter's making. He says that the Holy Spirit has come. This is the dawn of the new promised age. And how has it come about? Because Jesus was crucified, was resurrected, was exalted to God's right hand, and Jesus is the one who has poured out this Holy Spirit. That Jesus. You remember that Jesus? The, the one from Nazareth. The, the one who you guys conspired to have put to death. He's the one who is at God's right hand, 
pouring out this Holy Spirit who's causing this activity in your midst, present tense. And here's the answer that Peter has been driving towards. Listen up. This is, this is what Peter, this is how he answers chapter 2, verse 12. This is what this all means. Pentecost, the fire, the tongues, the rushing wind, the dawn of the new age, all of it means this, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What does this mean? I'll tell you what all this means. All of this means that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which just means Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, but not only that, Jesus is Lord. Multiple times the, the word Lord has been used in this chapter, in this passage, referring to the Lord, God himself, in the Joel 2 quotation above. It's a, it talks about the day of the Lord. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And who does Peter tell us this Lord is? Jesus of Nazareth. And that's exactly what Peter demonstrates from these three Old Testament passages. All that is happening has a very simple and straightforward explanation. Jesus is Lord. That's why these events are taking place. Now there's two, I think, really important comments here. The first comment is to just notice something about the action of the Spirit here in this passage. Um, there's, a, there's a certain um, strand of our brothers and sisters in Christ who talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, rightfully so. And they're, they're helpful in maybe correcting some of our tendencies to not talk as much about the Holy Spirit. Uh, our charismatic brothers and sisters, and they talk a lot about the Spirit's gifting, and it's, and it's, it's very helpful. Um, but one thing that we need to sort of recognize when we talk about the Spirit is the Spirit is almost always, almost always in the Scripture, presented as one who's not exalting himself, but is exalting Christ. It's interesting to me that when they see all of this work of the Spirit and evidence of the Spirit, and they say, what does this mean? Peter doesn't say anything about, you know, the, the, here's, all of the, here's an itemized list of all of the things that the Spirit does. He says what this means is that Jesus is the Christ. And so one takeaway that we can, we can have here, and this is, this is not the last word, on the question of what the Spirit does. But one important takeaway is to recognize that the Spirit exalts Christ. And that's, the Spirit's exaltation of Christ is one of the the chief things that the Spirit is intended to do. It's to glorify Christ. It's to shine the spotlight on Christ. And so in a very real way, to be a church that is filled and empowered with the Spirit, to be a a, a church where the Spirit is rich in our midst, one symptom of that is that we are all about Christ. Christ. Because the Spirit turns hearts and eyes up towards Jesus. And so Christ-centeredness, we might say, is, a, is tacitly Spirit-centered, if you follow what I'm saying here. That's one important takeaway from this passage. But here's another important thought. Have you ever asked yourself, why are there so many Christians in the world? Like, it's helpful to take a step back and consider all of this from a set of new eyes. Like, even about ourselves, why are we here? What's the meaning of this particular gathering of believers, this room full of Christians here? What is the meaning of all of this? Is it because we all in this room, we share some kind of psychological deficiency that makes us needy and unstable, needing some kind of God in the clouds to give us a sense of meaning? 
Is it because it's just an accident of history that we've just imbibed the tradition of our parents and grandparents and we were, we were born, many of us, having exposure to this religion and so we're, we're in this room tonight because of those circumstances? Are we here because we're all more superstitious than the average person and this Sunday evening worship service just kind of scratches some superstitious, outdated itch we haven't yet progressed beyond? Or could it be that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died and came back to life. And his followers saw him come back from the dead, resurrected. And as a result, those followers were transformed from cowards and mutineers to those emboldened preachers and messengers for Jesus, laying down their life for the message of his resurrection. Could it be that the living and resurrected, active and real Jesus of Nazareth literally ascended to the Father's right hand and poured out his Holy Spirit, creating and commissioning a people uniquely his own, empowering them as they live distinctly kingdom lives, and that movement of the Spirit has persisted even to this day. Could it be that the amazing work done by incredibly average, normal people bearing Christ's name, the building of hospitals, the embracing of orphans, the abolition of slavery, those daily sacrificial, generous, and hospitable lives lived by millions of Christians all over, all over the world is explained by one idea, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Think about this, this strange gathering. Do you ever just think about what it is we're doing here together? These songs that we love so dearly. More than that, the, the beautiful life that we have together as a church family. You know, I had a members meeting last week, and I always joke that after members meetings, I just, I feel like my grandma after Christmas. Like, I'm just so happy to have all my kids here, to be here together. You know, it's like I get that now. That's what members meetings are like. You know, this, this beautiful life together that we have. Is this normal? Is this our doing? I mean, do, do we just creatively plant TCGS by force of personality, and this is all explained away by sociological phenomena? Are we striving to live holy and upright lives in this present age? putting sexual sin to death, practicing forgiveness and mercy, trying to kill envy and resentment, opening our hands, our wallets, our dinner tables and homes? Is this all because we're gullible? Or is the meaning all of this Jesus? That Jesus is behind all of it. Friends, the Spirit of God has been poured out. The people of God have been set aflame and unleashed into the world, including us and all of it means that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Peter makes this point, and how does the crowd respond? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said, and the rest of the apostles, brothers, uh, uh, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I see the original hearers, they understand their complicity in what has taken place. Their stomachs sink. What do we do? We've messed up. What can we do? Like, think about how Peter says this in verse 36. Let everybody know for certain that Jesus is Lord in Christ, the Jesus you crucified. They say, we crucified him. His blood is on our hands. It says they were cut to the heart. This phrase, cut to the heart, is actually, it's not really clear what it means. There's only a few instances of it used in Greek anywhere else. And Homer, the Greek poet, not the Simpson, uses it to describe the trampling of hooves' feet on the dirt. And it's like that phrase Homer uses to describe like dirt being trampled by horses. And he's like, their, their hearts were, they were cut to the heart. They were trampled. They're mortified, rightfully so. If Jesus is Lord in Christ, he is going to judge us for our sin against him. 
If Jesus is Lord in Christ, he's going to make all things right. He's going to destroy all evil, all evil and wrongdoing. Those committed to living in evil and darkness, Jesus is too kind not to judge. He's not aloof to evil. He's not aloof to injustice, suffering, and violence. He will judge all evil, including our evil. So what can be done, they say? Do we have any hope? Or do we stand condemned eternally for our crimes against Jesus? Verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So that those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter says, how will you respond? Repent. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. He is Lord in Christ and he is a merciful and gracious Lord in Christ who is eager to show pardon to sinners. He says, it's not too late. You can repent and you can receive the spirit too. This spirit that's at work in us, you can receive it too if you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. This promise is for you and your children, the house of Israel, and it's for those who are far off, even the Gentiles, this promise is for, Peter says. He exhorts them, save yourself from this crooked generation. Don't be like those who persist in in rejecting Jesus. Respond. And it says, 3,000 received his word and were saved that day. That's mighty fine preaching. Now, every soul in this room, if this is true, if what Peter says, we must respond. If Jesus is Lord in Christ, if indeed he did rise and ascend, if he sent the Spirit and kick-started the church, if the new age has dawned and Christ sits enthroned in the heavenly places, if that's true, then we can rest assured that he is going to make all things right and that Jesus is going to judge all evildoing, including the evildoing in our own hearts. Jesus is too kind and too good to turn a blind eye to evil and suffering. He is too merciful not to judge all evil as Lord in Christ. And the scriptures tell us that we are implicated in that very evil. That the world is a mess because of, because of me, because of you, and because of all of us. Each of us are born complicit in a great conspiracy against God and his anointed, and we rage against him, and we want nothing to do with him, and we stand condemned. And the, the first right impulse standing before Christ is to, is to have our stomach sink and say, what can be done? But the good news of the gospel, friends, is that we can repent and be baptized because the same Jesus who was exalted as king was crucified. He, he was judged on behalf of the sins of his people. He was condemned for his people. And for all of us who place faith in Christ, who, who turn from our ways of doing things and, and turn to Christ and try to follow after Christ and stumble and, and imperfectly strive towards him. For all of us who turn to Christ, we receive pardon. A pardon we didn't earn, a pardon we don't deserve, but a pardon that Jesus offers. We can repent and be saved. Do you think you're too far gone? Do you think you're too far off? Peter very graciously says that this promise is for you and your children, and those who are far off. Do you think you're beyond the pale of Jesus' forgiving and saving power? Friends, your sin is not greater than the mercy of Jesus. Jesus receives all those who come to him in faith and repentance. 
who, who own, I, I, I have sinned and I have rebelled against you and I stand justly condemned before you. And if I place my eyes on him and ask him for forgiveness, he grants it. His, his, his mercy and grace is, is magnified and Christ is glorified as a gracious king when we turn to him in repentance. Look to God. Say, I'm tired of doing things my way. It's wrong, it's evil, I'm fed up, I want a new life in you, I need forgiveness. Then turn from sin and begin walking after him. Have your sins forgiven, your condemnation removed. You are not trapped in whatever you've done. You are not trapped there. You are not stuck there. You don't have to be enslaved to sin. You are not your sin. You are not your past. You are not the sin that people have committed against you. Jesus is stronger and bigger than all of that. Receive pardon from King Jesus. Come to Jesus. Repent and be baptized. To be baptized is to go public with your commitment to Jesus, this Jesus. I want to, I want to identify with him, and I do so by being baptized. And then receive the Spirit. Become a part of the church. Learn to walk in the ways of heaven, the, the, the ways of the new age, the ways of the kingdom. Here with us. Learn to walk in those new ways and put sin to death and learn to love righteousness and holiness and receive the hope of eternal life. Peter's message is that all of this means Jesus is Lord in Christ. And if that's true, every one of us, in a very real sense, this moment, this moment is you and God. That's it. You and God. God offering, he is calling to you if you have never believed and repented. He is calling to you through the scripture to repent, believe, be baptized, and receive the spirit. For those of us who have believed, who have professed faith in Christ, one of the most important habits we can learn is little r repentance. Maybe several years ago, we, we repented and we, we embraced Christ for the first time and we were baptized. And now, our daily impulse is to die to ourselves and to repent and to renew our, our, our commitment to Jesus, looking to him again with new mercies, newly, freshly printed and minted mercies that morning and press in towards him. Press in towards him. Learning to walk in step with the Spirit. It's our hope that the Church of Your Station is a church that exalts Jesus. That like these apostles who laid their lives down on the line to proclaim that Jesus is resurrected and that Jesus is merciful, we pray that that is the lifeblood of this church. And that's what we're about. If you're here tonight and any of this resonated with you or you have more questions about any of the things that have been said, I would love to talk with you. I'm going to be posted up by this door back here. You have to pardon my... I'm very sweaty right now. It is warm in here. <laughs> but, I, but I'd love to speak with you about what it means to repent and believe in Jesus and why we're so passionate about these things. If you've been following after Christ for decades and you, and you, you want to you have a conversation with me or any of the other we would love to sit down and talk about let's follow Jesus harder together. Let's, let's keep at it as a family. I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to encourage you in the next few moments to consider the questions for reflection that are um, at the bottom of your, your bulletin. Uh, just for a couple of moments, Consider that and ask the Holy Spirit how he's, how he's prompting you and how he's leading you to respond to the things that have been said this evening. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you in, in faith, believing from your word that 
you hear us and that you are seated at God's right hand and that we have the spirit from your hand, Lord Jesus, and that you are, you are real and you are active and you are near to us. And we, can't, we, we don't understand the physics of that. We don't understand the geometry of that or whatever. We don't understand, but, but we believe in faith that, Lord Jesus, you are supreme over everything and we are your people and we long to know you and to be near to you and to be like you. And we pray that you would direct us by your spirit as to how we need to respond, what sin we need to forsake, how we need to turn towards Christ. Be that for the first time as a new Christian or for the millionth time as an old Christian. I pray tonight specifically for any folks who are in our midst who have never repented and believed the gospel, who have never received the spirit and never been given new life. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would act, that you would open their hearts. As I said a moment ago, we... We pray, Jesus, that we would be a church forever about you, about making you known. And may you nourish and encourage us from your word and acts as we study it together. We pray all this in Christ's name.